Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. We want you to know that during COVID, we're holding one big service outdoors and we'd love for you to join us whenever you can. And now, here's our teaching for this week. We hope it leads you to encounter the way of Jesus more fully. Good morning, everyone. I hope that you're doing well, you and yours. My name is Jed, and it is an absolute privilege to serve as one of our pastors on staff here at Sunridge. And if you're a guest with us this morning, we'd like to send our warmest greetings to you. There are hosts available in the chat that you can reach out to. You can also email us, of course, at info at sunridgechurch.org. We're just so glad that you're joining with us. And I also thought if I'm going to say hello to the people who I don't know, I also might take some time and just say hey to some of you who unfortunately I haven't gotten a chance to see for the last several months due to the circumstances of the world that we live in. And I'm thinking about you, Patricia, and the hugs that you would give me pre-service to get me all set Donna, we've been praying for you. We hope that you're doing well. And I heard a rumor that we might see you in a couple days. Steve and Kelly, you are always on my heart. I pray for you guys all the time. Gosh, people in the front row, Carol and Phyllis, Nora, John, it was great to touch base with you just last week and hear about Adrian. There are so, so many of you, Marv, our fist bump before uh, the rest of the service concludes. I could go on and on and on, and I should probably stop here, but if I didn't greet you personally, just know if, if you remember me, I probably remember you too. We've been studying in a series for the last several months called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. I'd encourage you to go back in our archives and listen to those, but Britt and Bob and the rest of our staff thought it would be appropriate at this juncture of the year to prepare our hearts for Christmas, of course, and we would do that in a three-part series. Uh, It's taking place right now, and then in a few days uh, for our Christmas Eve service, and then finally next Sunday we'll conclude that, and then at the beginning of the new year uh, we will return to the Sermon on the Mount, and that's just a reminder again that next Sunday we will be online only, and you can celebrate uh, the rest of this year and the new year together uh, with your families and whoever that might be. So when I'm thinking about this past year and I'm thinking about Christmas 2020 and I'm reflecting on all of those names that I just said, it's reminding me, of course, that this has been a year unlike any other. And a few weeks ago, Lisa, who just spoke to you on Church Life, she and I were brainstorming for this message and she reminded me of the lyrics of a song that we sing pretty much every year at this point in time, and a line that really strikes her and that hadn't really been highlighted for me before. And those words are going to appear on the screen right now. I'm not going to sing it for you in case you're wondering. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years. Da-da-da-da, 
Da-da. You see it there in the yellow, and, and those are the words that least brought to my attention. And quite frankly, I, I probably sang this song at least 30-something times in my life. And like many other Christmas carols and a lot that comes with this season, it really has just passed by. I, I haven't spent much time reflecting on it. And I shared even a few years ago during the Advent series that generally speaking, when it comes to the Christmas season, my heart isn't quite in it the way it ought to be. And finally, a few years ago, I had a, a breakthrough moment during Advent when in study, I realized and learned that joy means grace, recognized or the awareness of grace and how that struck me as someone who isn't generally so joy-filled, at least the way it's traditionally described as this exuberance and enthusiasm. I tend to be a person who can really, really feel the latter part of that line, that there's angst in me about life and my human experience. And as I was looking more and more at these words and thinking about the everythingness of it, uh, we just thought this might be a really appropriate way for us to enter this Christmas season, the year that's been like, or been unlike, I should say, any other. So we're going to take some time this morning and travel backwards in time, but we're not going to go back to that nativity scene. We're going to go 600 or so years before that night in Bethlehem and instead ground ourselves in the words of a man, a prophet, Habakkuk, who we actually don't know very much about. But what we do know is that he prophesies in the country, in the region where Bethlehem would have eventually been. And so the words that he speaks are in proximity to where the Messiah would be born someday. But he doesn't speak or sing in a way that is joy-filled or hopeful. You see, Habakkuk is one of the few prophetic books that we have where instead of the prophet declaring words for God, instead he levies harsh complaints to him. You can find this in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And almost every time I read Habakkuk now, I think about Pam uh, our women's ministry director, who, who loves this passage of Scripture too. So if you have questions, go ask Pam. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2, says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, judgment comes forth, perverted. Now I'm thinking in this moment about the songs that we sing during Christmas time about peace on earth and his righteous judgment. And that's what we celebrate, the, the coming king. And yet here at this moment in history, this man Habakkuk, He's prophesying on the precipice of what would be arguably the final straw for what was once the United Nation of Israel. 130 so years before Habakkuk's time, the northern nation, the kingdom of Israel, had been led off in captivity by the Assyrians. And so he's well after that. 
but he's speaking at a time where within his lifetime, within a few decades, we will see the southern kingdom of Judah where he lives fall. In verse 12, he writes this, Are you not from of old, O Lord my God, my Holy One? You shall not die. And you'll notice here that Danny put up a little footmark for me, footnote, excuse me, and it references the fact that in the ancient Hebrew tradition, so in the oldest of texts, and that MT stands for the Masoteric, and the Masoteric would be the official Jewish scriptures, but preceding that, prior to that, in the earliest of texts, when the copyists were reflecting on Habakkuk's words, they, they translated probably rightly this phrase, you shall not die, not we shall not die, but you shall not die. And this is incredibly significant. It's incredibly significant because the idea that a person, let alone a prophet, would declare to God, you shall not die, implies something blasphemous. It implies that God would have a birth of sorts, a beginning, and then a theoretical end. So what does that mean that Habakkuk would declare after all these complaints that God is forcing him to see a world that looks upside down and is wrong and is violent and is perverted with justice and injustice and looks terrible? What would that mean? Well, Habakkuk, as he is saying, you shall not die, is essentially communicating that God, if you are who I thought you were, this world wouldn't be as it is. And so he says, aren't you the God from old? Aren't you the holy one? Aren't you the one who in your righteousness would not let or allow any of this to take place? And so how fascinating that as transcripts of his words would be passed on, that people would be so uncomfortable with that notion that someone would say to God, words that would assume that he'd have beginning and end, that they would swap it out to say, we shall not die. This morning, I want to take a look at several passages of scripture instead of being at that nativity scene in the gospels and reflect on what it means for us as human beings to come to scripture and learn a way that looks differently than what we might be accustomed to finding there. Here's your first fill in the blank. I'm convinced that scripture can teach us that those who are engaged with God can become enraged with him. When we think about the prophets and we think about them speaking on behalf of God, we often do not consider the fact that their calling to speak for him meant that more often than not, they would be confronted with reality and truth and words that they did not want to say and people certainly did not want to hear. And over and over in the scriptures, when the false prophets are spoken to, when they're attested to false prophets, the falseness of them is that all they want to do is proclaim that things are okay and things are going to be good and they're just going to be fine. And in this last year, 
we have spoken about the fact that it is so instinctive of us, certainly and understandably so, to look at the current version of the world that we have and think, no, this is, this is just going to be okay. This isn't that big of a deal. It doesn't matter where on the spectrum you fall about how you conceive of what is happening around us. I don't think there's any person who at multiple points throughout this year has not wished so badly that we could just return to what was or accelerate to what we hope is going to be. And how has the dialogue changed? How have the conversations changed? Remember early on in the spring when we said, well, well by the summer it will be gone. Or by the fall. And now the words are, well, when the vaccine arrives, how long are we going to look at what is around us and wonder what in the world is happening? And perhaps even more boldly, God, what are you doing? See, it's important again for us to see that those who are, and we see this in scripture over and over again, who have deep and engaged relationship with God, have such depth to it that rather than running away from the difficult thing, they allow themselves to not only be confronted with it, but even perhaps do a more audacious thing and levy their complaints to the one who could probably handle God. Here are some examples of other individuals in Scripture, other prophets, who come to this place where they say things to God that we might not think belong in our Bible. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4, we have Elijah. But he himself, he left his servant, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a solitary broom tree. And he asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. This is the very first, uh, I should say second passage of scripture that I got to teach on as a high school student uh, in San Diego. The first message that I ever taught in my life was about the kingdom. And then the second time my home church gave me the chance to teach, I went in a completely different direction and, and I taught about Elijah. And I was so struck by his story because he had this mountaintop, literally this mountaintop experience where he saw the faithfulness of God and, and God show up in such a massive way. And then within several lines of the text, he's running away from Queen Jezebel and he's fearing his life. And he goes out in the wilderness and he has a moment with God where he says, I'm the only one left. It'd be so much better for me not to be here anymore. We see a similar thing in the concluding scenes of Jonah chapter 4, another prophet. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. Might be seeing a theme here. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, look how honest this is. It, it, it's almost humorous, but it, it really is just honest. Yes, angry enough to die. And I'm so grateful for Teddy who leads and pastors our high school students. And just last week she was sharing about this moment with them where she taught through the entire book of Jonah, which is four chapters long. And instead of her just 
you know, narrating the whole thing and you know, doing that deal that we learned Sunday school where it's about the big fish. Uh, she, she had them storyboarded out together in their groups with their leaders. I mean, what a fantastic idea, Ted. And, and in that engaging activity, the students got to see that this story really is about so much more than someone being swallowed because they're running away from God. And I'll get to that end in a little bit, but the emphasis here, again, is a human being who is so able to say a really difficult thing. I don't want to be here. I don't like this version of the world. And then finally, Jeremiah chapter 20 You've heard me speak about Jeremiah before. He might be my favorite prophet in the Old Testament. He's known as the weeping prophet, and for good reason. Uh, I just imagine that his lap and whatever he wrote on is often stained with tears. And see these words. Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying, A child is born to you, a son, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon. Because he did not kill me in the womb, so my mother would have been my grave, and her womb forever great. Why did I come forth from the womb to see toil and sorrow? and spend my days in shame. Jeremiah was a contemporary of Habakkuk. He was just much more prolific. We know him much more, but you see the tone and the timbre of the writing. It's the same. They're prophesying during a time when the kingdom of Judah is about to befall the fate of the north. Destruction, utter destruction, and then exile. When I I see that passage of scripture in Jeremiah, I think how often it's so easy for people when we see scripture and we see our Bibles to, to say God's word and then assume that that must mean that if it's God's word, then it operates or functions like a book dropped from the sky, but that's not the sacred text that we have. The sacred text that we have in so many ways can sound sacrilegious because it's filled with hurt and pain. I've often said before that in scripture we see this collision and it's wild to me, but I'm so thankful for it, of God and his absolute sovereignty, his absolute sovereignty, his absolute control, deciding that he would relinquish and give and choose to use broken human beings to say things that we would never put up on signs, that we would never want to memorize and say, this is what my life is about, or this is what I stake my claim on, or I stand on this, because even though these are words that I and many others and perhaps you can empathize with, the fact that the version of the world that you live in and the life that you currently have makes you feel as though you wish it had never been or that it wouldn't have to keep going. 
Is there not something to see? Then this text, what we call the Word of God, that we'd have that here over and over and over again. That these prophets, that these would be their prayers and their yells and their cries and their screams. So that says something else about what Scripture can teach us. See, it teaches us that God can handle being on the receiving and giving end of really, really difficult things. Uh, I didn't cite this in the text, but I'm remembering now that the, the way that Malachi, towards the end, it concludes, God speaks to the prophet, you have spoken harsh words against me. And the prophet says, how have we spoken harsh words against you? And, and then the way that God responds to him is he doesn't say, you've complained at me. He doesn't say, you have bored your heart and soul to me. He says that you think that it's so unfair that the righteous get shafted and the wicked prevail. And God, again, you heard Britt talk about this last week, the the weather, the, the sun, the rain, it rises and it falls on all of us. And so essentially God is saying there, you think you know it all, but there's so much more. So God can handle, he can handle taking it. But he can also handle sharing or revealing or saying things that might not immediately alleviate what we wish he would just take. So let's go back to Habakkuk. And for the next several slides, I'm just going to reference the verses there. And if you're taking notes or if you want to, I'd encourage you go back and reread some of these things. Because after Habakkuk levies that initial complaint, we see God's response to him and paraphrase. I would just say that God says to him, it's going to get harder. And in verses 5 through 11 of Habakkuk, we see God reference the Chaldeans, which would be synonymous for the Babylonians. And again, Habakkuk, like Jeremiah, prophesies and reveals that God is going to use this war-hungry nation, this superpower that is arising, the Babylonian Empire, to absolutely decimate Judah and carry these people off in exile. In other words, after Habakkuk's complaint, God reveals it's not going to immediately get easier. And it's to those words where Habakkuk says to God, are you not a firm of old, the Holy One? And that's where he says, you shall not die. There are theologians after the Holocaust, Jewish theologians, who began to engage in thought that would communicate how unfathomable it would be that the covenantal God would subject or allow for millions of his people and others to be killed in concentration camps. Uh, One Jewish theologian said that God died at Auschwitz. And in his mind, he wasn't saying that God ceased to exist. In his mind, he was reflecting on the difficulty 
for us as human beings to believe or continue to believe in a God when everything around us seems to indicate that that God has either allowed or caused or what have you given us a world that we thought he never would give us. That idea was not unique to him. Again, we see it first in Habakkuk. To Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 19, God actually, after Elijah utters those words, he asks him a question as he's hiding in the caves. He says, what are you doing here? I think sometimes when we complain to God and when we're honest with him, he asks us back questions that would cause us to self-reflect. And there isn't all the time in the world, but when you hear that story about Elijah and God revealing himself at the end of that theophanic revelation, in older translations where we see that God was in the still, small voice, we'll find more accurate texts now translate that God was in the silence. That there was something about all of the, the bigness of the fire and the wind and the shaking And yet God wouldn't be in those things. He would be in the silence, in the void, in the perceived lack. To Jonah, God says to him, and I touched on this a little bit earlier. He he can respond in a way that's difficult to hear when he says, I have a bigger picture. I have something more. And as Teddy and the high school students would have seen last week, Jonah, as he has seen this widespread conversion of the Ninevites, the capital city of the Assyrians, who, if you're following along chronologically, in a hundred or so years from purportedly when Jonah would have taken place, the Assyrians, they're the ones who take the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. And so what a wild thing. That's, That's not even the point here, but... When God speaks to Jonah and Jonah's complaining about the widespread repentance of the most evil of places, this capital city to him of sin and everything that's so far from God, God's response to him is, how can my heart not see the people and even the animals, just the life that is there? And it's a picture of grace. And then Jeremiah we can summarize it in chapters 30 through 31, and I know that we're at customers seeing Jeremiah 29, 11, but, but if you want a wilder picture of the spectrum of emotions and feelings, then read chapters 30 and 31. And in Jeremiah, God essentially says, this hurts, but there is hope. I don't know what this year has been like for you. I've talked to people, heads at a one-on-one just a couple weeks ago. She reflected on how this has been a hard year, but it certainly hasn't been the hardest year of her life. She's had harder things. And I'm aware of what I'm unaware of, that many of you look at this past year, and it may have been difficult, but 
Maybe you've had other seasons of your life where everything was much more upended than this current version. And yet, I think we can all admit that for the first time, collectively, globally, in our lifetime at least, we've experienced something that has united us in a way when it comes to disappointment and frustration, confusion, stress, anger, a desire to give up, doubt. If there's been any global experience, it's, it's been the last year. So what does that mean for a holiday when we're celebrating the arrival of Jesus the King as a baby in a manger, lowly? I think that Scripture teaches us, based off of not just what we saw, but if you read this over and over, you'd see it's here time and time again that there's absolutely a way for our hopes and our fears, our faith and doubt to do something radical and surprising, to produce worship for the one who meets us in the dark night. What does worship mean to you? What does it mean? Does it mean to sing words to songs about things that you already believe? Or to sing words to a song that are catchy and make you want to move a certain way? Have you thought about what it would look like to be fallen face down? Because that's the only response that's left. What would it mean for in your heart to not be sure about what's happening next when the king comes? You don't know what the king thinks about you and what it means for your life and what's going to be because the king can do whatever the king wants to do. How absurd and beautiful that in the Christmas story we meet a king who we can worship, we can fall face down before, who starts just like you and me. Lowly, helpless, dependent, crying, in need of touch and security. Someone who have to grow up and experience hurt and temptation, hardship. I want to read you the very end of Habakkuk chapter 3, and I love this. It seems so Christmassy to me. It seems so Christmas 2020 to me. It's got all of it. Hardship and hope. Habakkuk sings, though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on its vines. Though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no fruit. Though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls. Yet. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. God 
The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. And he said, note at the end, to the leader, the stringed instruments. And from the very beginning of him prophesying, that screaming, yelling, and derision and anger, this confusion, the questioning of God, the honesty, the, the heartfeltness of his humanness and brokenness. Habakkuk was singing a worship song. He was composing. Probably didn't have to think too hard about the words that would fly from his mouth because they came from a place of utter need and desperation. And today, as we approach Christmas 2020, I'm thinking that we can sing those words a little bit differently, those words that least reminded me of a couple weeks ago. We sing about that old little town in Bethlehem. We get to that nighttime scene, that, that dark place. We see the everlasting light is shining, breaking forth, piercing the night. And that's why we can say the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. How about to think that not just this past year, 2020, but all the years of human history. It could have been 800 years before Bethlehem when Elijah was running away or 700 years before when Jonah was met with the sweeping grace of God over a people who would eventually cause the, the northern kingdom to fall. It could be 600 years away from Bethlehem. When Habakkuk and Jeremiah spoke of the nation and revealed that the southern kingdom would fall. It could be today. Next year. So regardless of where we find ourselves struggling to figure out what all of this is, all those years before this moment now, somewhere down the road, we celebrate at Christmas time. That when the Messiah breaks forth in the night when the light shines, He's going to be rescuing us from thinking there's anything in me and you that's going to figure out how to do all of this perfectly and be able. But instead to say that He does absolutely hold all things together, that if by Him and through Him He created all things, if He is above all things, his holding of all things means he can handle whatever it is that you can't handle in this Christmas season and not just in this season. The stuff from before that still haunts you and the things for tomorrow and further down the road that you are not even aware are coming. Here's a concluding thought for me 
and hopefully for you too. In a year like no other year. And still Jesus. It's, it's him. There's there's no one and nothing else. I'm wrapping up today thinking about how we just moved into a new neighborhood. And I was working out on one Saturday and, and our neighbors across the street, Bruce and, and his family and, and next door, Robert and, and Gary and Carol, and they were taking out their Christmas decorations and setting up all the lights and and getting the things out. And it reminded me that there has to be something so securing about pulling out these boxes with the decorations and the lights that they've probably had for years. And maybe they've added stuff along the way, but I just imagine, and I could be wrong, but I just imagine that across the street and right next door and around the corner of the houses that are decorated, so many of those decorations have a sense of familiarity and comfort to them. And, and for, for, for all of us, I think we long for that sense of there being something that's familiar in this time. And we're just hoping and maybe we're beginning to experience that the Christmas season would, would give us some sort of joy because this past year has been filled with so much disappointment and frustration after frustration. And so perhaps you, like my wife Mallory, and we found a box that had an ornament from 2012, the year that Thadden was born, the, the year right before we moved out here, we found this box and she opened it up and she held this ornament, this star that said 2012. And, and it's almost like a wave of, of, of peace fell upon her. She could hold something physically that reminded her that even though this has been a really, really tough year, and maybe the, the hardest year, in our marriage and in our life with our kids that she could hold something and remember not every year has been like this and not every year is gonna be like this, but what matters is in this moment, in this moment, she doesn't have to hold and have all things together. You see, for you and I, as we think about Christmas 2020, we have the opportunity to hear a story that we've heard a million times, perhaps to sing, songs that we've caroled to over and over and over again. So there's so much familiarity to that. But my hope and prayer is that for whatever it is that you hold and look at, this Christmas story you might be thinking about, and Norma, it doesn't matter, but when you think about the Christmas story, you think about how familiar it is, in the place of that familiarity, there would be a freshness there because you see and experience perhaps for the first time ever. It's not about you holding or having it all together. It's about realizing that in Christ we're held. He holds all things. Merry Christmas, Sunridge, and to you watching. God bless you. We'll see you on Christmas Eve. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. 
If you need help with something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. Or if you'd like to know more about us, just go to our website, sunridgechurch.org, and you'll know what to do from there. We hope you'll listen in again next week. But in the meantime, wherever you go, deepen faith, bring hope, and live love.